0: Uh, This morning, church, we are finishing our study of Genesis that we began last fall. And so if you would turn to chapter 50, Um, chapter 50 really is a summary of all 50 chapters that we have found in Genesis, all the way from the creation story to the end of the life of Joseph. And we won't be reading all of chapter 50, uh, if we'll begin in chapter or verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would honor the very reading of your word and through your spirit, you would now open up our hearts and our minds to receive what you would have for us. I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, amen. The last time that Joseph was in Canaan was 35 years earlier. And a lot has changed during this time. Uh, I can't imagine the emotions that he had to be feeling after burying his father and then walking that road back to Egypt. The last time that he had walked that road, he was being led out as a slave. But now this time he is being He's going back on that road and he's going back to Egypt as the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. It would have been quite an emotional time and I'm sure every landmark he saw triggered a memory and his brothers had to be watching, seeing this emotional time for Joseph and they began to get worried. Uh, when they arrived back in Egypt, that worry turned to a panic What if Joseph had only been nice to them because their father was alive, but now that Jacob is dead, Jacob Jacob or Joseph is going to kill them. So they're terrified. So they come up with a plan and this is the best plan that they can come up with. They send a letter to Joseph that essentially says, dad said, be nice to us. That's their plan. I mean, they've they've had about 17 years knowing this day was coming to think of it. That's the best they could come up with. Dad said, be nice to us. Obviously, you can see right through that. And so when Joseph got that letter and he read it, he wept. He wept because he realized at that moment that his brothers never actually thought he had he had truly honestly forgiven them he wept because he knew that for all these past years they've been living with guilt and they've been living with shame and they didn't have to live with that i mean can you imagine the guilt and the shame that these brothers felt i mean think of it when they had to go back and they had to tell their dad that joseph was actually alive I can remember as a kid, I, I once I was in our church parking lot and I threw a baseball and I hit someone's car and I damaged it. When I had to go to that owner of the car and tell them what I did, I thought I was going to throw up. I had such guilt and shame from that. This is a lot worse. I'm not even sure how you begin this conversation. I mean, dad, um, you have a minute, I'd like to talk to you about something. You remember that time we brought you your favorite son, Joseph's coat, and it was, it was covered with all blood. And, and we told you that a, you know, a wild beast had killed him. Funny story, actually. Um, Joseph's not dead. Uh, he's actually alive. He's in Egypt. God's raised him up to position of power. He's taking care of all of us. So everything's all right, right? Can you imagine that? I'm sure that when Jacob heard those words, he let a lot of four-letter Hebrew words fly. And they felt total guilt and total shame. And they have been living under this shame for a long, long time. One of the obvious omissions that we have um, when we were in the mid-40s chapters in Genesis when Joseph reveals himself, we don't have any word of the brothers asking for forgiveness. It's an obvious omission there. You would expect it, but I don't think they. I think they were so filled with guilt and shame they couldn't even hope for such a thing. And so, what happens is you see them waiting seventeen years, for they finally they can ask for forgiveness but even now when they ask for it they don 't think joseph will freely give it and so they come up with a lie in order to ask for joseph 's forgiveness i mean this family this family makes you want to pull your hair out so they're they 're lying to joseph while asking for forgiveness from joseph so this family still has some issues but I don't want us to miss the actual beauty of this moment because it is beautiful. Think of this. Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, and they didn't get along and they forever separated. And then you have Isaac. He had two sons. He had Esau and Jacob. They hated one another. So they separated, briefly met again, and then forever separated. And it's not until we get to Jacob that we actually see a family reconciled. And this is what God has been after all along in this story, is reconciliation. When we think of the story of Joseph, we often um, think about how God has used all that's happened in Joseph's life in order to save thousands of people from the famine. And that's, that's perfectly right. That's appropriate to think of the story that way. But remember, God could have saved all these people thousands of different ways, like by not bringing a famine in the first place. But here we get to see the real reason he was doing all of this. It was reconciliation. This family, if you remember, they were a fractured mess when we first met them but then we see God start exposing idols and and ripping those idols away, throwing people into prison, taking father and children through unspeakable pain, unbelievable grief, all so he could make that family whole. And what we learn here is that reconciliation is so important to God there is no length that he won't go to. There's no amounts of pain he will not bring or suffering he might bring in order to accomplish reconciliation. And of course, what we learn here, what we see here, um, in its seed form, we see fully grown in the tree of Jesus. He went through horrible injustice and pain, all in order that we might be reconciled with God. This is certainly one of the things that I have learned um, from my friendship with Alton Hardy. If you remember when Alton came and preached at our church, he he talked about the horrible injustice that he had to endure, the, the, the evils that were done against him. But what the people around him meant for evil, God meant for good. And like Joseph Um, God began to work into Alton's heart to make it grow hot with compassion, uh, warm with mercy, not vengeance. And God rose up Alton in such a way that he might be used as an instrument of reconciliation. And it's become a beautiful thing. And Alton and I, we have actually, we've talked a lot about this, but, but one of the ways I can see this playing out Um, in the future, um, concerning both Christianity and and race, is this. A a day is coming, uh, perhaps rapidly coming, in which white evangelical Christians will no longer um, be in a position of power and influence. Um, This is a position that Um, white pastors have enjoyed through uh, much of America's history. Um, White pastors have certainly had a whole lot of sway and a whole lot of influence over the last 200 years. Um, And it doesn't take a genius to see how this influence is rapidly coming to an end in our society. And we haven't handled that power very well anyway. So as a white pastor now, I have to ask the question, where will I go? Who am I going to go to lean on to help guide me through um, what for me is going to be uncharted waters? Who can I lean on that's endured this, who has already over the years faithfully served God when they haven't had the power? Faithfully served God in the face of injustice or oppression. Well, I'm gonna lean on my black and brown brothers and sisters in Christ. That's who I will lean on. Because they have modeled what it meant or what it means to follow Jesus and to love their neighbor when they are powerless and oppressed. And so I'm gonna rely on their leadership. I'm gonna rely on their guidance. I, I already do. And so I thank you Pastor Alton, I thank you, uh, Dr. Beavers, for your friendship and for the way that you have already been leading me um, and preparing me for the days ahead. Whatever people have intended for evil, we rest in the fact that God intends for good. When Joseph's brothers here, when they fall on their faces before him, Joseph responds with those words. Verse 20, it's the It's one of the most famous sections in all of Genesis. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. And these words serve not just as the summary of the Joseph story, they actually serve as a summary of all of Genesis. Why did God create a world that he knew would go awry? Why did God allow the serpent into the garden? Why didn't God just eradicate evil when it first came into this world? Why do we have to live in a fallen world? Why is there so much suffering and pain? The answer is this. Whatever was intended for evil, God has intended this for good. God is sovereign. God is in control and God is good. And the end result of all of this is going to be salvation and reconciliation. That's the answer. You meant this for evil. God meant this for good. And understanding God's goodness and his sovereignty allows us to weather any storm. It allowed Joseph to weather any storm. He knew who God was. And he also knew who he was. When Joseph's brothers, they come to him and they're seeking, please don't punish us, Joseph. Joseph responds by saying this, am I in the place of God? Vengeance belongs to God, not me. I'm not God. And once again, I believe that this is a summary statement of what we have been seeing throughout Genesis. We have seen throughout this book what happens when people have tried to put themselves in the place of God. And Things have gone horribly wrong. We actually saw that in the very first sin, in the very first pages of Genesis, when Adam and Eve ate from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why did they eat it? We read because they looked at it and they knew that they wanted, they saw the fruit and that it can make them like God. They wanted to be like God, and thousands and thousands of years have gone by, but the desire to be like God has never gone away. It's something that we as humans still struggle with. It's actually the the source or the root of all of our sins. We put ourselves in the position of God, and it's easy to come up with examples for this. But I just want to give us two or three examples of of how we put ourselves in the position of God. First is this, uh, we become our own moral authority. The Bible clearly tells us that certain things are right, certain things are wrong. But how often do we look at those things and we think, yeah, I mean, I, I can see that's clear. I can, yeah, I mean, understand what God is saying, but, I personally don't think that is right and I'm going to do what I want to do. And we become our own moral authority. Um, In other words, uh, we treat God's moral law kind of like we treat the laws to social distance ourselves right now. Um, Have you noticed there is absolutely no consistency whatsoever in social distancing practices? Uh, the only constant that I have found is that people will use social distancing whenever it's convenient. And so uh, if you don't wanna go into the office or if you don't wanna meet that person for lunch, you just pull out social distancing and say, you know, I wish I could, but you know, the law says I've gotta do this. But if you want to be with that group, if, if you want to be with your friends, well, social distancing is, is out and you could just go hang with them. Because I can assure you of this, I've walked Jemison Trail many times and there is absolutely zero social distancing as you see the herds of people walking by. And Redeemer couple, you know who you are, who's dating. I saw you holding hands and you are not in the same household. You know who you are. So we treat God's moral law like that though. It's just a suggestion, but we're our own moral authority. So God's word concerning sex, marriage, how we need to forgive one another, how we need to be generous with our money and give to the poor. We know that those things are crystal clear, yet we choose to do what we want to do. Uh, During this quarantine, Uh, Lauren and I probably like many of you have taken this time to clean up pretty much everything that you could possibly clean up in a home. Uh, We've been throwing things away. We've been purging the house and uh, we've we've reached these levels. We've actually gone into our basement, pulled out all these old files and we've started shredding them, uh, which is a very satisfying thing to do. Our children have loved shredding all the documents. but we actually found our old W-2s. We have saved all of them for the last 24 years. And uh, so I'm looking at our old W-2s. Do you have any idea how much um, Lauren and I made collectively uh, in our first year of marriage? Together, we made $16,000 our first year. Um, Even after I finally finished seminary, Uh, My first four years in ministry, the most I ever made was $24,000 a year. Uh, So the college students that I would take out to lunch had more money than I did in those times. Yet during all of that, um, it was just a non-negotiable that Lauren and I would tithe and we would give. It's just not really something we even had to think about. It's just something you would do. And I'm not saying this in order to pat myself on the back because we were only doing what God had required of all believers, all believers to do this. I'm telling you this story because I want you to know that Lauren and I never once lacked, ever. God always provided. And this is true of every one of God's commands he gives us. I know that there are some commands that you hear and you read and you're crystal clear and you hear, but you think if I obey that, that will be the absolute end to me. If I withstand, withhold you know, not having sex until I'm married, that's gonna be the end of me. If I, if I have to uh, give up on this grudge I'm holding against some person and forgive them, that's gonna be the end of me. If I have to give when I don't feel like I have much money, well, that's going to be the end of me. But hear me, it won't be you will never lack. And what you find is the very thing that you thought was gonna mean your destruction or the end of you is the very pathway in which God brings you unspeakable joy. God doesn't set up his moral commands as a way of keeping us down. They're a way of infusing life and joy into us because he's teaching us what we were designed for. So submitting to his moral authority becomes the pathway for joy. All right, let's look at another way. Another way that we put ourselves in the position of God is by acting like we are all-knowing. How many times have you thought you could read someone else's mind? I mean, think about it. And how often has that gotten you in trouble? Um, Yet you keep doing it. Um, You keep ascribing motive to people. You keep thinking, of course, I can look in there and see the inner workings of everything going on in your heart and your mind. But this is something that belongs to God alone. Think of all the evils that we ascribe to people because we believe we know what they are truly thinking. You know, if a politician that you really dislike does something good, what's your first thought? You can read their mind. The only reason they're doing this good thing is because they're just trying to win win votes. (laughs) And so we've become a people who cannot even praise a good action done by somebody we dislike. We can't do it because we just have to ascribe motive. Yet that is something that belongs to God alone. He alone knows what makes people tick. He alone can read the people's minds. If someone says to you, you know, that they were going to give you a call and they were going to invite you to join, you know, this group of friends as they were going out to dinner, but I was going to do it, but my phone died, and you immediately think, liar. They would have called, they could have borrowed a phone, they just didn't want me there. You believe you can read that person's mind how many times has that gotten you in trouble? This is something that only God can do. A final one, and once again, there's many that we could pull out, um, but a final way that we put ourselves in the place of God is by worrying. When we worry about something, what we are saying is that we are in control. That we are the ones who should be in control of this situation, not God. So when we worry about whether or not we're going to get sick or whether we are still going to have a job or whether our kids are gonna turn out okay or or whether we're ever going to find a spouse, when we worry about these things, what we are doing is we're saying, we're in control of all of them. Not God, but, but me. And hear me, we were not meant to carry that weight. That's God's job. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, his best friend was a man named Philip Melanchthon, who was prone to worry. Um, He was actually a very timid, fearful man. And anytime the Pope would just lash out at, uh, at Martin Luther, it was Philip who would tremble with anxiety. And one time, Martin Luther just looked at Philip and he said, Let Philip cease to rule the world because that's really what anxiety is, is when we think we have to rule the world, but we were not meant to carry that weight. That's God's job. And so these are the ways that we put ourselves in the position of God. And what we see here is that although Joseph was one of the most powerful men in the world, he refused to do that. He knew he was not God. And this put him in a position to actually be used by God for reconciliation and salvation. At Joseph's best, he merely points us to the one that is greater than him. He doesn't point to himself. Jesus was the one who died and rose again to bring in reconciliation for us. And it's in Jesus that we place our trust not in men like Joseph. All right, so let's look how Genesis ends here. Uh, Genesis ends by looking at a future hope. Look at verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So we read here as Joseph was dying, um, he says to his brothers, and I, I think the brothers there is just his way of saying his family. I don't think it's his older brothers who are likely dead at this moment. But he, he says to his brothers here, God will visit you and God will bring you to the promised land. And, and these are very comforting words. But I want you, also want you to hear this. They are a acknowledgement of failure. Israel's descendants are fully capable of going back to the promised land now. They're fully capable. They could do it now. No one's holding a gun to their head saying, you have to stay in Egypt. You can't go back home. No one is doing that. They're not being forced to stay. They are not slaves. Yet here Joseph says, God has to come and to deliver them. And what we actually see is they are slaves. Israel's slavery begins here. It's it's not the slavery in which you're bound by chains and you have to do hard work. It's the exact opposite slavery. They are now a slave to comfort. They're a slave to wealth. They become slaves to all the comforts of Egypt. I mean, once the famine was over, they should have gone right back to the promised land. They should have gone back to Canaan, but they chose not to because Egypt had grown on them. They got roots there. They've become comfortable. I mean, with Joseph being in command and all, they, they've now got some clout. They've got some wealth. They've got the best land in, in the land of Goshen and Egypt. And so they decided, let's quit being sojourners. Let's plant ourselves right here. But they didn't plant themselves in the promises of God. They didn't go back to the land God had promised them. And Jacob, Jacob, at the end of his life, I think he recognized his failure. I think he made a final plea to Joseph and his blessing. Do you remember last week when we were looking at Genesis 48 and and Jacob, he crosses his hands there and and he's making this blessing, but all the while he's looking at Joseph while he's blessing the grandchildren. When he finishes blessing the grandchildren, he speaks these words to Joseph. It's his last words to him. Joseph, I'm going to leave something to you. I'm not leaving it to the brothers. I'm leaving it to you. I've got this one little mountain slope that I fought for and acquired. It's small, it's this little mountain slope. It's yours. And He leaves Joseph with that. And what that is by this this old dying man, it's actually a plea to Joseph. Joseph, I know you've become powerful. I know you have become wealthy. You have every comfort and pleasure imaginable here. But Joseph, this is not your home. I know you have endless tracts of land, all of that here, but plant yourself in the promise of God. I know it's small, but go back home. God has promised us that land. So he pleads with Joseph, but Joseph does not go back. Neither do his brothers. And now Joseph is dying, and Joseph realizes his failure. So his dying words is this. He makes his family promise, don't leave my bones here in Egypt. Take them back to the promised land. Take them back to Canaan. But he realizes if that were to ever happen, God would have to do a miracle God himself would have to come and to save them because they were enslaved to their comfort. And later, they would become enslaved in chains. God did come and visit them 400 years later when he came and visited them them through Moses. And he freed them. But more than that, we see that deliverance coming through Jesus Christ. Through that promise that we read here, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's a summary of the New Testament. And it's also the promise to which we still now hold. That's why we pray, Jesus, come, Lord, quickly, take us home. So I hope you hear in these words, it's not just a blessing not just words of comfort. This is a challenge for us, church. Will you hold on to that little piece of land? Will you plant yourself in the promises of God rather than enjoying the passing pleasures of sin? And all the while we are hoping and praying that God will come, Maranatha, come Lord quickly and save us. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for this great book, Genesis, that you have preserved over many, many years so that we might read it and know you. We thank you for the things that it teaches about us, the ways that it points us towards Jesus. And we just want to declare that Jesus is our hope. Unless you sent Jesus for us, we'd be lost, enslaved with our sins but you have freed us and you have brought reconciliation and you are our hope. We love you, Father, Son, and Spirit. And We pray this in your name, amen.